All right, um, open up to, to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're in a series called Right from God. There's a massive TV screen as you walk in telling you that, but I thought I'd reiterate it in case you missed that. Um, and we're going to be, we're gonna be uh, pressing on in that. Um, I used to think that the Bible was kind of a series of stories uh, that taught some good things about God. And, and some of that was perpetuated by the fact that I mentioned this last week, but I had a children's Bible. When I was bored in church, I would flip through my children's Bible looking at the pictures. And I would just see different stories. And when I'd go to Sunday school, I would hear different stories. And I would learn these different things. But now I see the Bible as one giant story. And, and it's all kind of being told by God. And, and it's using these individual stories. But it's not a series of disconnected stories. It's rather one big story. And what we're talking about this morning is one of the foundational, the fundamental threads that you see woven through the entire Bible. So God is telling a story, and one of the biggest storylines is going to be talked about. Because our passage brings it up, we're going to bring it up and, and, and talk about it. It's, it's the doctrine of justification by faith. Okay, Justification by faith. Now, this doctrine, a doctrine, by the way, is just a belief system. It's just, it's just things that, that people believe. Um, it's mentioned over 200 times in the New Testament alone. So in some way, shape, or form, I want you to start even looking for this. If you're reading elsewhere in the New Testament this week, um, start looking for this, this teaching, this truth of justification by faith. John Calvin uh, said this, The principle of the whole doctrine of salvation and the foundation of all religion rests on this one, uh, this one doctrine. Martin Luther, uh, we, we talked about the the Protestant Reformation a couple of weeks ago as a modern-day example of what Paul was talking about here. And remember, Galatians kind of shoved that forward. Martin Luther said this about the doctrine of justification by faith. He said this, This is the issue on which the church stands or falls. Now, if you look at Martin Luther's life and you know your history, you know he literally bet his life on that. I mean, he, he put his neck out on the line for this doctrine. I want you to investigate this claim. The doctrine of justification by faith is unique to Christianity of all the world's belief systems, either religious or secular. I'm going to roll out some truths today, but, but I, want to, I want to challenge you on that. I want to challenge you. Really, is that, is that really true or is it not? You won't find what we're talking about here this morning anywhere else. And yet, here's what's incredible. It's actually possible to totally misunderstand this even if you've been going to church for a really long time. And it's possible to completely miss this altogether, even if you've been coming to church for a really long time. Now, I want to have you do something. Even if you're not a note taker, pull out your notes for a moment. There's a giant white space for you to, to write on. And um, these are not going to be collected. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I'm not going to have you raise your hand and give your answer. So this, this is just an exercise for you, okay, to kind of engage you um, a little bit here. But... But I want you, in one sentence or so, and Paul wrote really long run-on sentences, so you can be like Paul if you'd like, but I would like you to explain what you know of justification by faith to a non-churchgoer. Okay? Now, we might have some non-churchgoers here. They're like, that's actually me. This is my first time in church. Well, you can write what, what, what you know about it to yourself, okay? But, but for many of you, you come to church a lot. You've been in church a lot. You've heard a lot of sermons. You may have taught things. What do you know of justification by faith? Just take a second right now. I'm going to stop speaking for a moment, just a moment, and I'm going to let you just write out in a sentence, explain this to a non-churchgoer. 
Okay? So your challenge is not to use a bunch of big churchy words. Just explain what justification by faith means to a non-churchgoer. Go ahead. Okay, number two pencils down. No, I'm kidding. Um, you can actually keep writing uh, if you would like. Um, and in fact, if you think of some thoughts as you go, you're like, oh, yeah, I would have added that too. Um, again, I'm not here to, to call on you and see what you wrote and all of that. What I, what I want to do is this. I want to hit a topic cold and just see, as you walked in this morning, this doctrine that I think for many of us would say, just face my faith. Yep, totally understand that one, know that one. And yet, as we open the scriptures and as we look at it and as we read we might realize, even after today, that, wow, I, I actually have started to misunderstand that, or I've actually missed that, or, or I didn't have as firm a handle as I thought I did. A lot of times we think, yeah, we know it, and it's like, okay, good, write it down. And to actually put it into words, we're hard-pressed. We say, wow, that's, that's a little bit more challenging than I thought. Here's what I want to show you. A capital A apostle, by capital A apostle, here's what I mean. It's one who actually walked with Jesus and saw the risen Jesus. Okay, that's Peter that I'm talking about right now. This capital A apostle from last week had more to learn about the doctrine of justification by faith. And the reason we know that is his actions weren't in line with it. So he had begun, he, he had begun to, to move away from what this doctrine, justification by faith, is all about as he pulled away from Gentile Christians who weren't acting like Jews. Remember that? That's from last week. So if you don't remember that, go listen to the podcast or simply read uh, the earlier part of chapter 2. Because Paul goes and confronts him on that. Remember? He goes and confronts him and says, that's not in line with the gospel. So if a capital A apostle who was personally trained by Jesus for three and a half years has more to learn about the doctrine of justification, would you please stay with me? Some of you might think, ah, I totally know this one. I'm going to play Angry Birds for a while. Angry Birds is so like two years ago. What's the new one? Candy Crush. I'm going to play Candy Crush, right? Don't play Candy Crush. We have precious little time to, to look at this and say, maybe like Peter, we have a little bit more to learn about the doctrine of justification. Maybe it's not head knowledge, right? Maybe it's like Peter. Our convictions hasn't changed. Our belief system hasn't changed. We still subscribe to that, but our actions are pulling away from that. The pressure's on, and so we're starting to act in a different way. We pointed out last week that if your convictions are over here and yet your lifestyle is over here, this space in between is called hypocrisy. Not one of you in this room says, would you please label me as a, as a hypocrite? I love that. If I could just live my life completely false and be a hypocrite. No one wants that. So, so maybe this morning it's not more head knowledge. Maybe you've got that down. Maybe you wrote down the definition that would just fit right in the middle of a systematic theology book. But maybe God has something to teach you uh, this morning about it. Um, every one of you in this room has an opinion on a couple of questions that I'm about to fire out at you. And, um, and I, would, I would toss out that um, any person you met this last week, any person you even laid eyes on, has an opinion about these two questions I'm about to ask you. These are actually great, just kind of, just kind of starter questions. It doesn't mean you have to ram your Christianity, your belief, your doctrine down someone's throat. It's just an awesome way to start getting to know someone. Here's question one. Do you think that heaven and hell are real? Do you think that heaven and hell are real? Do you see how everyone in this room has an opinion? You do. 
You have thought about this. You have an opinion on whether you think heaven or hell are real. Every world religion has an opinion on that. In fact, they have written documents on that, right? We as a church have this in our doctrinal statement. We have an opinion on whether heaven and hell are real, right? So that's question one. Here's question two. Who goes to heaven or hell? Who goes there, right? It can be phrased a little bit different. How does one get into heaven or how does one avoid going to hell? Those kinds of things. But everyone has an opinion on whether heaven or hell are real. And everyone has some thought about how someone goes to one place or the other. For the purpose of our picture today, um, what about you? Do you think you're on the up escalator or do you think you're on the down escalator, right? We've seen this in Tom and Jerry cartoons. We've seen this in movie, art, literature, music, all over the place, right? All these kind of caricatures about heaven and hell. It's everywhere. So, so how does someone get into heaven or hell? We're going to talk about heaven and hell this morning. And here's what's interesting. On a Sunday morning, you're all looking relatively put together. Um, and you've shown up and you're relatively on time and you're here, right? We're talking about heaven and hell. That's a different conversation than when you are face-to-face with someone, maybe bedside with someone, who they are pretty certain that their time on earth is, is coming to a close, that their life or, or death is imminent. Some of you have been there. Some of you have looked in the eyes of someone who is searching your eyes and your face and holding your hand and saying, am I going to go to heaven? How do I know? How can I be sure about this? What else do I need to do? You ever be in that situation, it will change this conversation in your mind, for the rest of your life. It just will. There will be an urgency to that. If you've watched a loved one go through this, you're asking that question. As a Christian or as a non-Christian, what's next? I mean, they're right at death's door. What else is there? The most hardened cynic begins to ask different questions when they're in that place. So this morning, I really hope that we don't just leave this in this safe, polite place. It's, it's, it's hard, right? Because I don't think any of us today think that we're imminently going to die within the next couple minutes or hours or a day or two. And so we have to, we have to kind of, you know, say, Lord, would you help, help us get a sense of urgency about what is going on? Here, here is the most common answer with maybe some slight variation that you will get to this second question of how does someone go to heaven or, or how does someone go to hell? It's almost always, with only slight variation, something along these lines. Good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell as punishment. You tracking with that? Is that, is that generally what, what you would say? I mean, just from experience, just from, just from thinking about things. Now, I would, as a Christian pastor, answer the same way. I would say the same thing, but I would want to qualify something really, really clearly, and it would be this. I would want to say, can we just ask the next logical question to, to where this is going? And that is this. Here's, here's kind of the, the next question, okay? How good? How good, or maybe a different way of phrasing it is this. Who decides what's good enough? What's the standard? I would answer it this way. How does someone get into heaven? By being a good person? I agree with that. Is a good person 
brought into heaven and a bad person punished in hell? I would say yes to that, but I'd want to qualify, and I would go to this place in Scripture, by the way, start to lock into your brain. If you're a Christian who's serious about sharing the gospel with other people, start to lock in your brain, church, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and following through the end of the chapter. That's what we're looking at. Remember, this is just one of the core storylines of the entire Bible. Anyone hear about Miles uh, from Friday? You guys catch this story? Okay, Miles is, uh, I think he's five. Is he five years old? Five-year-old kid. Um, I caught this kind of late Friday, and so I went and recorded several news channels. I, I just had to see what was, what was going on with this guy. Um, he's a cancer survivor who got to be a hero battling evil for a day. Now, here's what's remarkable. Um, some 12,000 people turned out in San Francisco to turn San Francisco into Gotham City while this kid goes around and rescues a woman who's attached to a bomb, uh, does, uh, rescues Lucille, the giant's mascot, gets the key to the city from the mayor. I mean, it's just this awesome scene. This Lamborghini that you saw in that first shot was donated, so he's driving around in the, in, you know, the modern version of a, of a Batmobile. And as I'm watching this story, I just go, wow, 12,000 people took their Friday, and this woman's on the news going, I took my day off to come do this. And it's not just San Francisco, it's just this worldwide phenomenon. Go, go do some research on it. This really struck a nerve. Why did this strike such a big nerve with us? This isn't just a church thing or a religious thing, it's because of this. We've all experienced kind of this epic battle between good and evil. We love the storyline of the superhero winning out over the villain. I mean, look for it in, in art. Look for it. It's, it's there all over the place. We love that storyline. And as you look at, at good and evil and this kind of epic struggle that is there, think about your own life for, for just a moment. There's, there's really kind of a couple of paths to go. Um, Let's take this as the right path, okay? The right path would be, I'm going to try to be really, really good. Maybe not by show of hands, but think about it in your own mind for a second. Have you ever, like, either on a, on a bad spell in life or when things have gone bad or whatever else, you've just purposed in your mind, I'm going to try to be really, really good. Anyone ever do that before? This started with me as a kid. I did something, I felt guilty about it, I didn't want to do it again, or I did something, I got spanked or punished for it, it hurt. I didn't want that again. So in my mind, I purposed, I am going to be really, really good. And so I started kind of walking this path, okay? For those of you who have ever tried to walk this path of being really, really good, you all know something with me, don't you? It's really hard. I mean, it's really hard. How easy are the first couple steps? Easy, right? Super easy. There's something inside of us, especially as we, as we mature, we go, we go, wow, I'm really, really good. And then you think about it, you're like, that's really, really prideful. Pride is bad. Ah! You know? And each step begins to feel like you're walking in quicksand. Quicksand. And, and you're just walking going, this is really, really hard. And I haven't made it to like 10 o'clock in the morning yet on the first day. This is really, really tough. Some of you have tried this path of, of, being, of trying to be really, really good. Um, and, and kind of like this guy right here, um, you come to the conclusion that the only thing you're good at is being bad, right? You're like, that's way too hard. I seem to be really gifted at being bad. So what do you do? You go this route. What's this route? This route is being really bad. 
I mean, it's not just like you're, you're a little bit bad. Like you, you're bad. Bad to the bone is where, the, is where this, this movie takes us. Now, here's the secret about the person who's tried to be really, really good and the person who's like, that's too hard. I'm not good at that. I'm really good at being bad. You want to know some of the most miserable people you will ever come across? It's the person on that path right there and the person on that path right there. Those striving to be really, really good and those going, chuck all of that. That's way too hard. I'm going as fast as I can in the opposite direction. If you're taking notes, just write this passage down. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 16. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 16 says this. So don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? And then he says in verse 18, pay attention to these instructions. For anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. Now, that's a really interesting passage with a lot to dissect and talk about. But I want you to key in on that last part. Anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. Maybe you in this room have actually been on both those roads. And you would say, yeah, my life actually, I've lived enough life to attest. Those are both miserable roads to be on. So it brings us back to this question. So just how good do you have to be? How good do you have to be? What I want to do for a moment, I want to kind of shift gears and just say, let's talk about this word justification, okay, outside of just the church. I would put out to you that people from all walks of life are seeking justification. People from all walks of life are seeking to be justified. Now, uh, pastor and author Tim Keller uh, gives this kind of great I feel like it's just a great little working definition that I want you to write down if you're taking notes, and if not, commit it to memory because we're going to refer back to it later on. But he talks about justification as a validating performance record which opens doors. Justification is a validating performance record which opens doors. We'll kind of talk about that and unpack that because the first time I read that, I was like, hmm, I don't even know what that means exactly. But we'll kind of, we'll kind of talk about that. It's asking this question, do I measure up? Okay. Now let me take you into just your everyday life for a moment. Okay. There are some in here who are contemplating right now going to college someday. As you're contemplating going to college, what you are paying attention to is, is to this question, what is required for admission into that college? I'm going to take this word justification and put it on your schooling and say this. Your transcript becomes your justification for admission into that school. Does that make sense? That's, that's a validating performance record which opens doors for you. In this case, the open door is we accept you into the program. We think by your track record of school uh, over here that, that, that you will fit in with us, that you'll be able to cut it, that you'll be able to handle it, that, that you will move our school forward. You're in. Without that transcript... It's not there, right? Or if that transcript says something other than what they're looking for, you don't get in, okay? Move this on to a job. How many of you have, have gotten a new job in the last six months? Raise your hand for a second. Or switch jobs, okay? Yeah, several of you. This is happening all the time, especially in our valley, but, but, but around the country too, okay? 
When you go to seek employment at a new place, you don't bring your transcript necessarily, right? You bring your resume, right? Your resume becomes your justification for getting hired or not hired. Are, are, you, are you tracking with this word now? It's a validating performance record which opens the door for you, okay? So your justification for being hired at this company comes in the form of your resume. Therefore, putting your resume together is pretty important. What are the things that will validate my performance in the past to give this person confidence to hire me for the future, right? Now, that's just job, and that's work. We could talk sports. We could talk all kinds of different things. We, we see this through, through, through all of our life, okay? Now to the question of justification at the end of the age. What about when you're lying on your deathbed? What about when you're facing your own mortality and you're going, what's next? I always kind of threw out that I didn't really believe in heaven or hell. I'm starting to really question myself. What if I am going to stand before a judge? What if I am going to give account for my life? Now you're talking about not a transcript, not a resume, but some kind of a moral record, right? So what's your moral track record? What does it say? You're like, please don't make me write it down, right? All of us this morning, friends, say, please don't make me write that down. We like to spout off that, that we've been a pretty good person, but please don't make me write that down. Please don't make me really think about that and write that down. So heaven is a moral track record instead of an academic or vocational record, and it comes back to this. How good is good enough? Do good people go to heaven? I would say a resounding yes. Do bad people go to hell? I'd say a resounding yes to that. The Bible is absolutely clear. From Genesis, the first book of the Bible, all the way through Revelation. In Genesis, here's the message. Adam, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely what? Die. What did eating the fruit represent? It represented sin. You making the choice to sin. If you do that, you will surely die. All the way through to the judgments pronounced in Revelation, the standard God sets out is really, really clear of how good is good enough. It's perfect or death. That's it. The Bible doesn't really know much of graded people being sort of good or sort of bad. The Bible speaks of people as being perfectly sinless, or imperfect sinners. Read it for yourself. Search for it yourself. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now, this leaves a dilemma. How could a just God pardon guilty sinners? That's really the dilemma that this leaves for us. Only in Christianity is there not just a good or a great record, but a perfect record that justifies a perfect moral record that is available to you free of charge to simply receive. And in receiving it, you are now justified. Not with just a good record or a great record, but with a perfect record. Now, outside of Christianity, the world systems, both belief systems and the way we function in business, in school, in sports, in entertainment, knows nothing of this. It's absolutely foreign 
outside of Christianity. I want you to follow along with me, verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. All of that was my introduction. We'll pick it up a little bit in the pace. Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's a follow-up of him talking with Peter earlier. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is preaching about two belief systems here. This is what he's been doing for a couple of chapters now. And he's laying out two belief systems, and and one is man-made. And he's saying unequivocally, the man-made righteousness system of being justified is wrong. And there's a God-made way of being justified, and that's right. No one clued Paul in that that's not very politically correct to make absolute truth statements, but that's what he's telling us. There's a man-made way of being justified, and that's wrong, and there's a God-made, and that's the correct one. Paul is one of those who is uniquely able to lay out the other side's case on justification because he was absolutely entrenched in it. Remember? How was Paul seeking to be justified? How was he seeking to be accepted through diligence, through the keeping of the Ten Commandments, through the keeping of the myriad of commandments that that were born out of the commandments, through fastidious dietary uh, rule-keeping, through ceremonial washings, right? Through hard work, through perseverance, through fervor. I mean, he could state their case so clearly because that's what he was rescued out of. He's been on that road right there. And you know what? He actually got further than almost, than, than all of us. Certainly than his peers of his day. He was kind of, he was kind of way out there. And then in Romans 10.3 says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul wrote that to the Romans. The reason he knew that is because he was in that camp. He was ignorant of God's own righteousness. He didn't submit to that. So what did he do? He invented one of his own. That's what religious people do. That's what Pharisees do. We're up here in the ruling class. We've got this figured out. Let's get, let's get rules to kind of have people you know, work their way up into this. Let's invent our own rule system. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. Man-made justification is really popular because it's kind of flattering to us. You know that? It means you can win at your salvation. It's really flattering to Silicon Valley startup entrepreneurial types. Through discipline and hard work and perseverance for the rest of your life, you can win your salvation. That's popular, but it's deadly. It's dead wrong. That's man-made. I mean, think about this just for a second with me. Even if there was some outward adherence, let's take just the Ten Commandments. Or if you're not into the Ten Commandments, you say, I'm not religious. Why would I submit to the Bible's law or anything revealed that way? Let's do this. I heard a pastor one time talk about the idea, what if there was an invisible microphone that just recorded everything your mouth in a lifetime has ever said about the way other people ought to live? And at the end of the age, all you were judged on is just your own testimony about how people ought to live. Right? 
So you take your pick. If you're religious and you think you're God-fearing, let's take the Ten Commandments. Or if you're like, I'm secular, I don't believe in any of that, let's just take your own testimony about what you would say about how people ought to live. And let's, let's hold up your life and see if you're abiding by what you would even say should be being done. Even if there was some outward adherence to the law, whether it be the Ten Commandments or your own, your own standard, here's what, would be, 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 here's what would begin to be revealed to you, that even if there's outward adherence to things, your motives many times are far from noble. The thoughts that you and I have, while they're secret to other people, they're sinful, and we know we have them. So even if there's an outward external obedience, we already know we're hosed. Because the inward stuff is right there still. Go read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus stands up and teaches this exact thing. He points out the external law and, and our, own, our own hidden wickedness. Every person is left exposed. That's why verse 16 says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. There's a whole other way. There's a whole other way between these two extremes. And this is Paul laying it out. This is the title of our series of the book because it's so foundational. And it's not just foundational to Galatians. It's foundational to the whole story of God that we're talking about. And it's this. We are made right from God. You want to know the gospel in three words. Three words. It's right from God. Righteousness. Goodness. Merit, it all flows one way. It's something that is done to us and for us. Our only responsibility in this is to receive it. With no help from us. That's a great thing to celebrate. We've already sung about this this morning. This is utterly life-changing. Three times in one verse, Paul's going to take this truth and he's just going to kind of tease it out by saying some different things. If you write nothing else down... Maybe consider writing these three things down. It's that faith and nothing else is God's way of justification. This is true generally. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He's using a person, meaning just any old random person. People in general. They are justified not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He's emphatic about what saves. He's not, he's not unclear about that at all, but he's just speaking in kind of general terms. He then moves into something a little bit more personally. This is also true personally. Not only do we ourselves know, that's how he starts verse 16, but he goes on to say this, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Do you see him repeat that same truth? What saves you? It's faith alone. That's it. Not works. He said it twice now. He said it in a general way, but he's also moving it now into a personal way. This isn't just a matter of head knowledge. I agree with that. This is a person making a personal investment in that, a personal reception of that, a personal commitment to that truth. It's a little bit like the difference between saying, I believe that honey is sweet and tasting honey. Those are two different things, right? Um, knowing, knowing that we're saved by faith is to say, I believe that this stool could hold 
a human being. Now, as simple as this is, here's how simple the jump is between knowing that generally and knowing it personally and experiencing it and making a commitment. It's quite simple. Nothing huge or profound. But I have just placed my entire weight on this stool. Get it? That's the picture of this. It's not just knowing something in your head and saying, I believe that to be true. It's a personal commitment. We also know. You know how you know something? You test it out. We know this to be true. And we've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and placed all of our weight on his merit and not through the works of us. So, this is true generally. It's true personally. Um, He's going to now say it universally. Good teaching just repeats things. So he's going to say it one more time. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Is that a new idea? Say no. It's not. He just said it two other times in one verse. This third time, he's basically quoting uh, from Psalm 143.2, which says, For no one living is righteous before you. This is universally true. It's not just true for Jews, because they have the law and they couldn't keep it. It's true for Gentiles. It's not just true for church people, because we talk about this stuff and we're spiritual beings. It's true for people out there. It's true for people who would never step foot in a church. I want to wrap up our time by turning our attention to this truth. There's a a man-made way of being justified, and it's rotten through and through. You will be, or perhaps you are today, miserable trying to achieve justification man's way. Until you submit to God's revealed way of being righteous, you will be miserable. For a season, it's really pleasurable, actually. It's really pleasurable to kind of hold out onto your goodness. It's really pleasurable to only read stories of people worse than you. Just turn on the news. A lot of those people just... They're doing things you you probably haven't done or wouldn't choose to do. It's also really pleasurable for a season to just run hard after every appetite and whim that you could possibly get your hands on. But in a season of time, those both will become an absolute stench in your nostrils that you cannot get away from. You know why? Because you lay your head on your pillow every night and you're alone with your thoughts. And the really, really good person's going, this isn't working out so good. And the really, really bad person's going, if I'm honest, it's kind of cheap. I actually kind of hate this. God all the while is saying, he's wooing you. Submit to my way of righteousness. There is no righteousness apart from me. God's justification is infinitely better than man-made God's justification is actually about more than forgiveness. I don't know what you wrote in my initial question to you to explain justification, but I would, hunt, I would have a hunch it has something to do with forgiveness, and you're right. Forgiveness is a part of it. But think about this for one moment. What if you committed a heinous crime, someone else took your punishment, and you were pardoned, and you got to go scot-free? That's, that's a great part of the story, but here's what it leaves you. It leaves you with what? It leaves you wide open to go and commit that same heinous crime. It speaks nothing of restoration. It speaks nothing of healing. It speaks of freedom from the penalty of that sin, right? 
but with no hope of the future moving forward, no real, no real reinstatement into, into the family, into, into relationship and those kinds of things. So God's justification is about forgiveness, but it's about so much more. If we just leave it there, we miss out on things. Jesus did not only take our sin from us, but he gave us a fresh start. Someone spoke of justification as this way. Think of justification as meaning this, just as if it never happened. A validating performance record. I mean, it's just as if it had never happened. Isn't that a powerful thought? What if you could go back to your worst day and go to the moment before you made the worst decision of your life? Would you take it? Oh, God, if only I had not done that. My life changed forever in that moment. In Christ, friends, is the if only. It's a brand new start because we're justified. God's justification elevates the believer to the realm of full acceptance and divine privilege. Remember, it's a validating performance record which opens doors. So justification also opens doors. Romans 8.15, we're adopted as sons and daughters. Verse 17, we're fellow heirs with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.17, we are united with Christ so that we become one with him. And we are now in Christ, says Galatians 3.27, and he in us. If you think Christ is noble, you get to take on that nobility. If you think Christ is pure, you get to take on that pure. If you think Christ is wise, you get to take on that. If you think Christ has a great status, you get to take on that. Why? Because that's now your transcript because you've been justified by God. Do you see how this is so much better than just being forgiven? Just being pardoned? I wrap up with this. There's an objection to this, and that's that people would say, and people say this to Paul. We're not going to take a ton of time here. But people object to that and say this. If it's free and you don't have to do anything, you're inviting people to sin. Have you heard that before? Have you reasoned that way before? Won't that just invite people to, you don't have to do anything? They just get it? Man, that's just opening a giant can of worms. Paul heard that same rejection in verse 17. He says, he says, God forbid that somehow now Christ is leading us into sin. He just kind of shuts that argument down. And here's his reason to it. The person who is justified in Christ is fundamentally and forever changed. He is a brand new person. Such that to a person who's been justified by Christ, they cannot go on knowingly and enjoyingly, if that's a word, sinning. They can't. Does a justified person sin? Yes, they do. But they are fundamentally changed in it because the justification that has occurred. It's not just a legal title, but it's a metamorphosis. Follow along in Galatians 2, 19 to 21. I'm going to read out the rest of the chapter. I'm going to read it from New Living Translation. You follow along if you have a different one, but it says this. He speaks of dying and rising again. And how does this, how does this justification change me for forever moving forward? Here it is. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. 
My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if I keep the law, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So how do you know that you know that you're justified by God? Three very quick questions. Number one is this. Have I personally responded in faith to the free gift of grace offered by God? Have I personally made a choice to sit on that? Or is that something I've always held at arm's length and just kind of held on to that way? Romans 10.13 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is it simple to sit on a chair? It is. But that's a giant different difference between me saying generally that stools hold people versus me saying, no, this stool holds me. If you have gone through life saying, I believe Jesus can forgive sins, but you're not resting in the fact that you are forgiven by Jesus, it's as different as me talking about the stool that way, and you don't know anything of being a converted um, new creature in Christ, justified before God person. Here's the second question. Not only have I personally responded to this, but number two, where is my boasting? Where is my boasting? If I ask this question, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell, and you begin to spout off merit, goodness, effort, work of anyone except Christ, I don't think you know anything of what it is to be saved by Jesus Christ. Hear me clearly. It's not my job as your pastor to make judgments. That person's a Christian, that that one's not. That one's a real Christian, that one's a, a fake professing Christian. That's not my job. Thank you, Lord. I couldn't, I, I stink at that. I'd be terrible at that. That's, that's totally between God and, and you. But here's what I know. If I were to ask you today, if you're going to heaven or hell, and you begin to boast in your merit and in your goodness, then what I know from the teaching of Scripture as plain as day is that you're on one of two paths or somewhere in the fuzzy middle of man-made righteousness. And you're not walking in what it means to be right from God. You might respond, but I'm deeply concerned about my sin. I go to God and I ask for forgiveness. I want you to take your eyes off of your sin for a moment and I want you to think about your boasting. Where do you boast? Because you know who else are deeply concerned about their sin? Religious people. Pharisees. Pharisees are deeply concerned about their sin. And they come and they seek forgiveness. And they go away and they try harder. And they're miserable. So they come back and they seek forgiveness. And they go out and they try harder. And they remain miserable. Christians are deeply concerned about their sin. They come to God and they seek forgiveness. And they walk away and they celebrate. You know why? They're reminded their only boast, the only thing they're resting on is a work that's already been done, and it's perfect. So they go away free from that. 
Do they try harder? They might walk in trying harder, but it's not to earn righteousness. It's not to walk away and be more justified. They celebrate and rest in that. So where is your boasting? When one comes to Christ, repentance for sin is needed, yes, but also repentance for a lifetime of self-righteousness. For a lifetime of boasting in your own merit, in your own works, and why God should let you in because of what you've done instead of what he's done. That's a glorious day when you recognize that and you say, wow, it's already been done for me. Band, I want to invite you up as I ask the third question. Number one is, have I personally committed my life to Christ? Have I personally received this justification? Number two is, where is my boasting? If it's in anything except on the finished work of, of Jesus Christ... I challenge you to examine that. Number three is this. Am I loved by God? Am I loved by God? We are shown what real love is by the tangible expression of what Jesus Christ did to show us that we're loved. Look at verse 20. Who loved me and gave himself for me. You ask people if they're loved by God, and they say, yeah, I'm loved by God. Of course I am. That's his job. He has to love me. You ask other people, they go, are you loved by God? And they go, yeah, I think so. You ask other, they're really confident. But underneath a lot of that is wishful thinking. Underneath a lot of that is this week, yeah, I think I'm loved by God. Check in with me next Wednesday. We'll see. I'm not really sure I'll still be loved by God. For the one who's received justification by God, you ask me. In fact, this is one of the things I long for people. I go, God, I want other people to know that they know that they're loved by you the way that I know that you love me. You ever just walk around and go, God, do you, do you love other people as much as you love me? It's not a prideful thing. It's actually a really humble thing. Because I know myself. But I know that God loves me. He demonstrated it for me. There are days I don't feel worthy of being loved by God. And you know what I do? I look back to something that will never, ever change. It's that he gave himself up for me. It's that he already finished the work for me. There's nothing that will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're about to sing some songs, and here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to think that we're going to stop learning theology. Here's what we're going to do. The learning and the teaching is going to continue. It's just that it's going to have some more melody to it, okay? And there's going to be some, some pauses in between, and there's going to be a little bit of repetition to it. Would you please listen to what you're singing? The church gathers to sing truth back to God because somehow that lodges in our heart and brain and can change us in an instant. If this morning you are longing for a fresh start and maybe you've been shown this morning by God's word exactly which path you're on and you say, God, I've not been in submission to your righteousness. I've been trying to achieve things on my own as my own self-righteousness to justify and I'm ready today to submit to your righteousness, today's the day of salvation. Is it simple to sit on a chair? It is. Is it simple to be justified by God? It is. How hard is it to receive a gift? My kids, I love to give my kids gifts. And what I tell them to do is I say, put out your hands and close your eyes. 
I think we just adopted that in church because usually when there's an altar call, what do we do? Close our eyes, right? We ought to just all put our hands out. Maybe it would be good for you to physically do what is representative in this moment. But if today is the day of salvation for you, here's as it is. To anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. It's as simple as saying, God, I want to receive your justification. I believe in the finished work of Christ, and I renounce my own self-righteousness. It's that, it's that simple. For many in this room, they've already made that decision. They have made a personal commitment at some point in their life. And right now, as a church family, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate that Jesus' blood was spilled instead of ours. That his body was beaten instead of us receiving the due penalty for our sin. We're going to relish in that work because he loved us and he gave himself up for us. There may be someone in this room, there may be several in this room, who walked in thinking they were a Christian, thinking they were okay with God, and today you are going to celebrate your first communion, even though you've taken it before, your first communion as a child of God, justified God's way. I'm going to pray in a moment, and if that's you, a Christian for five seconds or a Christian for 50 years, I want to invite you to come up. The band's going to play several songs. And instead of passing the tray like we sometimes do, you're going to get up out of your seat. And what that's representative of is that second step, not just kind of knowing generally, but knowing personally. I am personally going to just step up, and it's going to represent us making a a commitment, a choice to celebrate this. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel. We thank you that laid out today in this passage and so many other places is the simple truth that we can't earn our way to heaven. That good people do go to heaven and there was only one good person. And Jesus, that was your perfect adherence to the law as you came to live a sinless life on this earth. And so we put all of our trust in that today. For those who would say, I want to become a Christian today, It's as easy as saying this, God, I repent, I turn, I renounce my life of sin, I give up on my self-righteousness. Would you forgive me of that? I recognize my helplessness. I receive, by faith, your justification this morning. Thank you for the work being done. I rest in that. Amen.